Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more where this came from, head to a thing or two hq.com to subscribe to our newsletter and to sign up for Secret Menu, our jazzy new hub for members-only content. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or slide into our DMs on Instagram at a thing or two hq. As a reminder, we offer free ad reads to Black-owned businesses, so hit us up at podcast at athingor2hq.com. Hi. Hi. We're back from hiatus. Weird. Welcome. Thank you. How, how are you feeling? Refreshed? Um, depressed about the state of the world? Yeah. Both. Nailed it. Yep. 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 Check, 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 check. Yep. Nailed it. It's hard, Erica. It's hard out there. It is hard out there. And by out there, I mean here inside of our homes because, again, that's (laughs) where we all are. It's fucking relentless. Relentless. I think relentless is the only word. It's it's really, really emotionally challenging. Um, And yeah, there's... There's only so much you can do about it, but we're trying to do what we can, aren't we? We are. Um, this episode is a point in that column, I would say. Yeah. The, <laughs> let's do what we can. Um, we are going to talk. We have a little bit of election content coming at you. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk with Adair Ford Burroughs, who is running for U.S. Congress in South Carolina's second district. She is amazing. And she also will offer some guidance on how to do what yourself if you're interested in running for office, um, which I love. If you live in South Carolina, second district, or if you are just interested in supporting Adair, look her up. Um, We didn't talk to her a ton about her platforms. Um, We talked to her a lot more about just what it's like to run, really. But she's a really, really compelling figure with um, amazing instincts and insights. And she um, is running against Joe Wilson, who, for better or worse, his claim to fame is he's the guy who yelled, you lie, at Obama during Obama's, one of Obama's State of the Union addresses. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, So a truly he, remarkable figure. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we are going to talk about something we are both doing, um, which is volunteering to be a poll worker at our elections this year. I'm so excited about this. I'm both excited and nervous for well, sure. Yeah, because it's like also the longest I'm going to be wearing a mask um, and the most definitely. people that I'm going to be interacting with since February. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So there's that. And it's also like 
such an important thing. And I am like, I got to get it right. I, I don't want to be the oh, one to I'm not, this up. I'm not worried about you fucking it up. That part I don't think I'm, we should be worried about. You know, I'm less worried than I was when I was sitting in training and learning all of the stuff. Like I feel more confident now, but it's like, uh, to me, it's like the most important and scariest group project um, I'll ever be assigned. You're good at group projects, no? Um, yeah, but like group projects are by design frustrating. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> fair, fair, you fair. Know? What made you feel like, okay, I really want to volunteer to be a poll worker this year? One, I love voting. Yes. Um, and I, I just, I get such a thrill from going through the, the ritual of it. And two, I just, you know, it felt like a no-brainer that uh, it's normally older people who you see at the polls. Um, at least certainly in my case, I've always noticed it's, it's older people and older people are the ones who are most at risk with COVID. And this is the most important election of my lifetime. Um, I hope, you know, that there's not one as dramatic as this later in my lifetime, but at least so far. And so I just felt like, okay, this is something I I can and should do. And maybe it shouldn't have taken COVID and Donald Trump to get me to engage in this process in this way. Speaking to the point that you make about older people generally being poll workers, um, according to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, 58% of poll workers in the 2018 general election were over 60. So yes, we need some young people in the mix. And the poll worker shortage, a poll worker shortage during this period of time is part of what caused such long lines during primary voting in Georgia and Wisconsin, because then they have to close polling places if they can't staff them. And that's a whole goddamn mess that I know frustrated um, so many of us. One of the things that really helped me like buy into it and be like, okay, this is what it's like. And this is, you know, how, this is why I want to do this is Helen Rosner, who is a writer for the New Yorker has been a poll worker for I think the past two years or three. And she posted on her Instagram stories, like basically like poll worker AMA and was answering follower questions about what's the experience like, what do you have to do? What do you need to know? Like, is it, is it exhausting being on your feet all day? And she just sort of like went through um, and answered those and saved a story that we will link to. Um, But I like appreciated having that like tell me everything experience too. For sure. I think that's so important. I could be, especially because even after going through training, I felt like I had even more questions of like, what's it really going to be like? So what was training like? What'd you learn? So it's interesting. You go into training and sort of the first thing you learn is there are a million different jobs you could be assigned and you don't know yet which one you're going to be assigned. And so you're going to the training sort of for all of them. And obviously I'm sure the training is a different everywhere and the rules are different everywhere. And so a lot of the stuff that I learned was New York specific or Kings County specific. Yeah. It won't necessarily be applicable, but through throughout the training and our, my training was four hours. I was like so nervous. Like, Oh my God, I already forgot this one thing. And how am I going to remember even to the point where I was nervous, I wasn't going to pass the exam because you have to take an exam. And then lo and behold, not only is the exam open book. So you have your poll worker manual during the exam, but you have your poll worker manual with you while you are working the polls. So that relaxed me quite a bit. Um, (laughs) And it just felt a lot less scary. Like, okay, I'm just going to be able to refer to this thing, like look this thing up in the index. I think all tests during coronavirus are open book tests. I think that's probably right. (laughs) The other thing, it just sort of 
forced me to get real with the fact that, like I said, it's this crazy group project with a bunch of strangers. And, you know, when you're working the polls, you don't leave until everything is wrapped up. So the polls might close at 930. However many people are in line at 930, they all have to vote um, and have to be allowed to vote. And then you have to start doing all of the closing procedures and nobody leaves until all of those are done. And of course, there's a million different things to be done to close these up. And I'm just imagining, I'm like, man, if like one person's really screwing it up, are we going to be there till midnight after having gotten there at like 5 Mm -hmm, mm a.m.? And that was started to freak me out. And I was like, yeah, but this is like the most important group project I'll ever be on. And also how often do I sort of collaborate and work together with people in my in like, your community or in my community in this way that aren't just, you know, people sort of like my self-selected network. And I, you know, I do do certain things, but nothing sort of on this scale. And I was like, okay, that's really important for me to do and to, um, and to come together in this way with, with all of these people. And I should probably do it more. I also, you know, sitting in the training room with all of these people in our masks was like, I'm putting myself at risk. And, and we all by, are by doing this. Yeah, yeah. By doing this. And then again, just had to sort of check myself and say like, but if it's not me, then who is it going to be? Right. Or are we going to have a shortage? And I care so much about voting in general, but I really, really care about this election and really want it to go as well as it can. And so just sort of felt like all of these sort of like moments of doubt or fear that I had in in sitting there learning what it was going to be like at every moment, I was like, it's not a good enough reason not to do it. Today's episode is brought to you by Inner Workout. Inner Workout is a black woman owned business based in Chicago. After an ongoing struggle with burnout, Inner Workout's founder, Taylor Elise Morrison, knew that she needed to find a more sustainable way to incorporate self-care into her life. That personal journey laid the foundation for Inner Workout. Inner Workout creates multidimensional practices to help you build the skill of self-care, which they define as listening within and responding in the most loving way possible. Their namesake class blends movement, breathwork, journaling, and meditation, and their take care assessment measures your well-being across five dimensions and gives you personalized self-care practices based on the results. You can take their digital on-demand classes from the comfort of your home, and they also offer facilitator training and certification. To try Inner Workout for yourself, head to innerworkout.co and use the code a thing or two to take 15% off your order. That's innerworkout.co and use the code a thing or two to take 15% off your order. Hey guys, I'm Kinsey from the I Love You So Much podcast. On my show, we talk about everything lifestyle, business, finance, beauty, you name it. My favorite part about the show is the amazing guests that we bring on. We have everyone ranging from like business experts to influencers, CEOs, creative masterminds. It's so much fun. If you guys want to find me on Instagram, it is just at Kinsey Elizabeth. I release new episodes every Thursday, so hope to see you there. I learned that in New York City, there are 10 days of voting this year. One nice thing about doing it in New York is that you can tell uh, the Board of Elections which days you are available for and which days you are not. I also was reminded that you do not need an ID to vote unless you tell them that you want an ID to vote. So you can when you, you register. Check a box. Say, yeah. yeah, you check a box and say, you know, I want to be, um, I want to be asked for my ID. So these things are all really New York specific, but 
There are nine days of early voting and it's better to do it early if you can. Like you've heard it from every side and every angle, this election is going to be messy and it's not going to be, you know, decided the day after the general election. So the more votes that get in earlier, the better. Even if you're absentee voting, get it in as early as you can. And then if you have an absentee ballot and you're nervous about it, you know, not showing up in time or getting lost in the mail or whatever it is, you can drop the absentee ballot off at any New York polling site. So obviously, the more sort of sure you can be about your ballot getting counted, the better. If you only feel comfortable mailing in your absentee ballot and doing it that way, do it. That is fine. That is great. But there are other sort of in-between options as well. Um, yeah. I have a prediction to make. Yes. I predict that you are going to feel about poll working. I think it's going to fill a New York City marathon void for you this year. I hope so, because I'm not going to get the New York City marathon this That's year. what I'm saying. Yeah. I think, But I think yeah. this is going to scratch yeah. that collective effervescence. We're all in this together. Yeah. Isn't this a miracle itch? I really hope you're right, Erica. Um, I think I think you could be right. I'm I'm really excited about it. I do like like I love our block association. Oh I my love, gosh, you know, doing things with them. I do love just being engaged with people in my community, um, especially you know people older than me, younger than me, who I wouldn't just otherwise come in contact with. Um, so I'm excited to to take this on, and I love voting. I'm excited um, to help people vote. I should have I I didn't do more, but the right amount of digging into this, but I'm going to share it anyway. There is an organization that in trying to get like teenagers engaged with uh, mm-hmm. the voting process, not just like actually voting, but, you know, getting involved in like as poll workers and volunteering, they are bringing voting machines to schools for various things that like high schoolers vote for, like student mm. council elections mm-hmm. and like prom king and queen or whatever to be like, see, (laughs) this is like how voting works. It's not very hard, but it like makes it feel super official. And then they recruit poll workers off the back of that, which I love. Isn't that so smart? smart? Like very smart. Very smart. 18 year olds to like up in, up in this, that like will shift the energy level for sure. Um, (laughs) I love it. I'm so into it. Love it. Also just love the idea of like a voting booth for homecoming king. Like (laughs) I watched a... I watched a really old episode of Sesame Street that was about voting. Mm. Um, I don't even know if Snuffleupagus is still on Sesame Street, but it was Snuffleupagus era. And he's like going in. I don't know. He feels vintage to me, but I feel like I haven't seen him around. Yeah, no. Okay. I know. Um, But he is like going in the voting booth and like it's totally illegal what he's doing. He's like spying on all these people. And I'm like, Snuffleupagus, get out of there. And granted, he's an imaginary friend. Yeah. So he's not actually, I think that's sort of how they get around the rules. But he's Mm -hmm. like going in the booth with all these strangers. I do feel like if people can't see you, you have different leeway. It's true. It's true. (laughs) All right. Should we bring on our guest? Let's do it. We are so excited about today's guest. We have Adair Ford Burroughs, who is running for U.S. Congress in South Carolina's 2nd District. She, if she wins, will be the first woman to represent the district since 1963, which really feels long overdue. Quite long overdue. Quite long overdue, Adair. We are so excited to have you. Yeah, we'll also be the first woman from the state in in 30 years. So it's a big moment for the state as well as the district. It's time. It's time. It's It's definitely time. time. 
Adair, can you walk us through your background and your story a little bit, how you, how you got to this place of wanting to run for Congress and running? Yeah, sure. So I actually grew up in the district in a really tiny town um, called Williston, a double-eyed trailer in the middle of a bunch of cotton fields and pine trees. Um, my mom taught school. My dad made cabinets. And um, I have a twin brother who uh, went into the military and is a veteran. And I went, ended up going to college on scholarship, was a math major. I've always been like a math geek, band geek. <laughs> as they Into were. it. Right. Taught high school math for a while and um, frankly got a little frustrated with people um, telling me I, as a young teacher, I didn't know what I was talking about when I was asking for systemic change and decided I needed more credentialing. So I went off to law school uh, at Stanford and I've been a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice. I spent four years with the federal courts here in South Carolina with a federal judge that we really just got some of the biggest cases, I think, that were really went to the soul of our state, which is one reason I stayed in that role for so long. And we had the South Carolina marriage equality case while I was there. And my judge also had the trial of Dylan Roof for the massacre at Mother Emanuel, um, which was the last case that, that I stayed for. And then the last four years or so, a friend of mine and I launched a nonprofit that does like reduced rate affordable legal services. Because there are so many people in that gap that make $20,000, $30,000 a year. So they don't qualify for free legal aid, but they are so far from being able to pay the really expensive rates of private attorneys. And so we really wanted to step in and represent, frankly, people like my dad, people like we went to high school with, and people we feel like were, you know, surviving, but not by a lot. And most Americans don't have a cushion. And, you know, one crisis can take you from surviving month to month to not, and to homelessness, and to, to this cascade of things. And so we really felt like if we could provide legal representation, access to an attorney at these critical moments, we could really prevent that slide into poverty. So this has been great. And it wasn't something I was looking to leave at all. And actually the decision to run for Congress, the hardest part about it was deciding to leave that work um, because I was very committed to it and I really enjoyed it. People have lawyer jokes, but you know, representing real people with real issues is, is really like the best job. Thank you so much to Caviar for sponsoring today's episode. I feel so happy that Caviar is partnering with us. I get so excited when we find a brand who wants to partner with us on the podcast who we've been paying cold hard cash for for like a really incredibly long time, honestly. We've been using this app since it first landed in New York. And the thing that I love about it is that I just never feel like I have to sacrifice quality just for the sake of delivery or takeout. Like they just have fantastic restaurants on there. They do a really nice job partnering with restaurants that wouldn't otherwise have delivery or takeout options. And specifically now in the midst of this pandemic, when so many restaurants are struggling, it feels so nice to be able to support the local restaurants that make my neighborhood what it is via Caviar. Um, and we hear such good things about how they are as a partner to these restaurants. So I feel so great about supporting them and so great about the fact that they're partnering with us on this podcast episode. 
Get the Caviar app and get the food you want. Their curated list of options offer quality meals with the convenience of in-app ordering. There are a lot of delivery apps out there, but Caviar is the go-to place, our go-to place, to find local restaurants that can be delivered right to your doorstep. Caviar is available in over 25 major U.S. cities, and there are plenty of options to choose from. With the Caviar app, you can get the food you actually want. So get the Caviar app, get delivery, get food you want. And just for our listeners, Caviar is offering $10 off an order of $20 or more. That's right, $10 off an order of $20 or more. All you have to do is put in the offer code a thing or two at checkout. Remember, that's $10 off a purchase of $20 or more with the offer code a thing or two. Download Caviar on the App Store or Google Play Store and use offer code a thing or two. So what made you then want to uh, leave the nonprofit and decide to run for office? Um, It was really, it was a combination of things, but the primary thing was frustration with our current congressman. You know, I have a brother I mentioned who's a veteran. He's had a lot of trouble with the the VA and Wilson would not return his phone calls. Um, The guy running against his office didn't. And there were a number of times I had in that role referred people to his office for things he should be able to help with as an advocate with federal agencies that that did not get returned calls. I found that very frustrating. And it was at a time where, you know, he'd been in Congress for so long. Two men had held that seat for half a century. And I just, yeah. And it was like, you know, I think people are ready. I think this is winnable. But I didn't actually think about me running until my husband brought it up, which I will forever be grateful to him for. He was like, you know, you could stop complaining and just run. And that's when I was like, oh, maybe I should think about that. So there was a lot of homework and a lot of process before I actually made the decision because I wasn't willing to leave the work I was doing unless I was sure uh, someone with the word Democrat behind their name could win the seat. So that took a good bit of homework and investigation on my part to make sure I knew what it would take to win and I was committed to it. But once I reached that conclusion, I was basically at the point where we had finally gotten this nonprofit organization to a point that I could hire a replacement. It was the first time that was true. I was going to make a living wage for the first time. So we could hire a replacement there, but nobody else was going to run against this guy. And I just felt like this was the time to change that leadership. And I would regret it if I didn't make a real go for it. What did some of that homework look like to figure out, do I have a chance to take this seat? Yeah, so a lot of it's numbers. We are looking at... Votes in the district, but not just in congressional races. So I broke down statewide races in the district, state senate, state house races. I mean, you wouldn't believe the spreadsheets. I'm looking to see how the district had changed and what it might look like from a partisan standpoint. And the short story is the district changed a lot since Wilson's friends drew it for him 10 years ago. It's not the same district. We have 77,000 new voters. So we were seeing shifts, like some of our most populous precincts shift by 30 points in just the last cycle. The question is like, is this enough? And one of the, I'll I'll just be a math geek for like just a minute. Please. One of of the big um, elements for me was how elastic the district was, which means it's how movable it is. It's not stationary and, and it ebbs and flows depending on the candidate and the cycle. And so you could see races where a candidate had very little money, very low name recognition, and it was like a double digit gap. 
but you saw races where a candidate had enough resources to actually get on TV um, in one of the two media markets and have at least better name recognition, and you were talking about a three or four point race. And so like that kind of indicates to you there's a lot of movement there. There are a lot of voters kind of willing to cross party lines. And we actually had the luck of a GOP poll that the press got a hold of in 2018 that said he's only seven points ahead and 17% of our voters are persuadable either way. And that a real like compelling, well-funded Democrat could close that gap. And it turns out, you know, I checked out the numbers and, and that was true. So that was the number side of it. Then you had the and personal he he was, side of it. He was seven points ahead of what? A generic Democrat. So okay. they did a poll with Wilson and I quote generic Democrat, and he was seven points ahead with 17% saying persuadable either way. And on the personal side, a lot of that homework was talking to mentors of mine who are now in the political space and saying, what does this look like in terms of how much money I need to raise? How much money do I need to raise? What does that look like in terms of work to make a real campaign plan? And am I committed to doing that work? What does it look like for my family? And having all of those conversations to make sure we were prepared for what was to come. Once you did make the decision to move forward, what did you do from there? What were the steps like to building out a team or to thinking about fundraising or setting those goals? Or are those even the things? <laughs> those are the things. So from a money perspective, I wanted to know up front how much money we needed. The answer was about $2 million. And you base that off of, there's good rules of thumb about how much you're going to need to spend on like TV and radio and all these other things. And we're lucky because we were a cheap congressional district because our TV markets are so cheap. Um, so in some places, you might need 6 or $8 million a competitive run, but here we needed to. So break that down backwards, like how much am I going to be raising in the quarters and that kind of thing. So that's all going well. We've outraised him every quarter. It's really rare for a challenger. But then I also had to have lots of conversations with people in power now, right? I wanted to start having conversations with mayors and members of town and county council. So they knew who I was before I was out there on the trail so they knew that I wanted to help them with local projects. I wanted their expertise on what the district needed. And so I had tons of, I had more conversation in the three months there than probably like the year prior <laughs> about the district with people that were there in the district. How did you educate yourself on the issues that were important to your constituents or your potential constituents? And how did you think about prioritizing those issues um, in terms of both, you know, you talking about them at events um, and just, you know, thinking about what you would want to get done first. Yeah. So it was um, actually really hard for me. That was one of the things that was hard for me early on because, you know, at the beginning, my team was like, okay, so what are your issues? And I listed, I think, 37. And they're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you had <know>, two years. <laughs> um, and so a lot of that was those early conversations with people telling, telling me what you think we most need. Rural broadband came up as a huge issue. Some of our resilient infrastructure issues with climate change, healthcare costs, hands down, when I were talking to individuals, really issues. So that kind of became more priorities, but also kind of, they had personal aspects to me. So I felt personally strong about them and was willing to fight. Uh, my hometown where I grew up still doesn't have the internet there's no infrastructure, you know, and my dad had foregone shoulder surgery that he needed because he couldn't afford the deductible. And so those were the issues that emerged that like were really needed in the district. And I was also personally passionate about and said, you know, this is going to be our priority, at least for the first term to kind of to even get these things done. And, you know, education is a lot of reading. 
<laughs> I do like to read. Um, but one thing that's been interesting in this role is you have to be an expert at everything. Um, we have a town hall and they could ask you about pick any issue. Right. And, um, so, you know, I have had a great team that helps put together materials for me. So I don't have to spend time researching and reading, um, but putting together materials for me to devour on white papers on different policies and that kind of thing. But I am a little bit of a policy wonk, so I enjoy that fine. But it's, it is time intensive to get up to speed on like everything. Thank you so much to Rory for sponsoring today's episode. So we're going to talk about skincare here for a minute. I think at this point, we all care about it. We're all doing something about it, but we all have such different issues that feel very personal to us. And I'm really excited about Rory because it does really feel like it's tailored to you. So part of the deal with Rory is that they formulate something specific based on your needs and what you tell them. And so you take this quiz when you first start with them. And let me tell you, I've never felt so seen in any skincare situation than when this quiz asked me, do you wash your face at night? And it's like, yes, always, rarely, never, like sometimes when I'm not tired. And not only did I feel seen, but I felt like accepted, like, oh, here's a skincare brand that is okay with me that I might not actually wash my face every night. Um, and would you have felt more seen if they said, do you skip, do you not do it? Cause it makes a mess on the sink top. I would have, but I also maybe would have been suspicious of what sort of like spy technology spy they wear. were using. Yeah. yeah, yeah fair, exactly. fair. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm really psyched about Rory. They really do. They, they see you for who you are and they say, here's the, here's the formula for you. Now there's a simpler, smarter, and more personal solution to skincare in Rory, a digital health clinic for women. They make it simple to connect with a healthcare professional online and see if personalized prescription skincare treatment is right for you, all from the comfort of your home. You complete a free online consultation, like Claire mentioned, and hear back from a U.S. licensed healthcare professional within 24 hours. If appropriate, they'll prescribe a personalized skincare treatment plan that works for you and your skin. And not only do you not have to go into a doctor's office, but with Rory, you don't even have to go to the pharmacy. Your custom skincare is delivered right to you with free two-day shipping. You can also follow up with a healthcare professional anytime if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. They're with you every step of the way on your skincare journey. With Rory, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time. Go to hellorory.com slash a thing or two to try out their Nightly Defense, a product formulated specifically for you for just $5. It's free to chat with the doctor and your first order is just $5. That's hellorory.com slash a thing or two. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. You keep talking about your team. How'd you find your team? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, when I started the team, like when you start early on, a lot of the early part is, is really about raising money so that you have that to build a team and mm -hmm. um, to do these paid communications later. And my finance director, Michael Carter, um, was deputy finance director on Joe Cunningham's campaign. And um, so I called Joe Cunningham, who flipped the first district in 2018, and I talked to his finance director who stayed with him and said, I need to like recreate you because she basically trained on the job. And she was like, well, you should talk to my deputy finance director. He was great. And he's from South Carolina. He knows the state. So that's how, how it started. 
And then um, finding a team, actually, this cycle was kind of hard because, you know, we had very competitive Senate races. We had a bajillion presidential candidates that in an early primary state was hiring everybody. (laughs) And so trying to find that early core team was hard. And then once the presidential primary was over, we had lots of talent to choose from to build up our team at a really good moment. One of the things that's been really interesting to me is how national politics is impacting local politics now and how local politics is impacting national politics. And I'm curious, how do you sort of take all of that into account in the way you go about campaigning and how does the presidential race impact how you run your campaign and even your chances of winning? Yeah, so it's been really hard to do this, but I took some advice from a mentor of mine and really tried to put that somewhat out of my head. Chris Grins, who's a senator from Delaware, who I've known for a lot of years, you know, he had conversations with him, Stacey Abrams, and some early, uh, other people early in this process. And one of the pieces of advice I got was, there is a lot you cannot control. And you need to knock out of the park everything you can control. You need to show up and do the work. And you're just going to have to let go of the things you can't control. And one of the things I couldn't control was who's at the top of the ticket. And so I tried very hard just to stay focused on my voters, on my constituents, on the issues in my district. And like that process was just going to have to play itself out. And it will affect my race, but it doesn't affect what I want to do in my district. It doesn't necessarily affect, you know, strategy, what messaging, what I want to tell my voters about me. It's just one of those elements in the, in the environment that I can't control, like COVID. I um, had no idea I was going to be campaigning in a pandemic. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, those are things you can't control, and you just have to really show up to work and do your best with everything you can control. What does your day-to-day look like now that you're, you know, dealing with COVID and all of the effects of that on a campaign? Um, So the way my team schedules my time um, is really about getting votes, right? That's what it's about. And that's the priority for my time. So I spend now with COVID, it looks different where I'm not doing in-person events to knocking doors, but I'm doing a lot of Zoom events. Um, We've done a couple, like we have this huge uh, rural broadband town hall on Zoom with some experts and, and tons of people. So lots of Zoom events, lots of telephone calls, lots of texting um, with voters. I do, if I'm honest with you, I feel pent up, like stuck in my house a little bit. <laughs> I'm an extreme extrovert. And I was really looking forward to the knocking doors and to talking to voters at festivals. And so we've pivoted where I'm still doing that, but definitely in a virtual and remote kind of format. Of course, we have the raising money aspect too that matters. But a lot of it is, is direct voter contact, some of it's fundraising, and then some of it is, you know, statements to the press or interviews with the press and different communications. And that's a growing part of it as we get close to election day. You talked about growing up in a double wide trailer and the fact that the area where you grew up in still doesn't have internet, have, doesn't have broadband internet. How in this moment, when you are relying on virtual events, are you reaching those voters where you grew up? Yeah, so whenever we have a virtual event, we always have a call in that you can call in from a landline or cell phone where people can get in. Um, and we put that out on, on, in different media. 
there's enough, there's just enough cell phone service that like you can, you can text and, and do a little bit of social media, but you can't do any big data stuff. But we are very sensitive to that, mm-hmm. um, that, that people don't always have internet access. And so there needs to be a call in way or way for them to talk to me that doesn't require internet access. Because we have about 75,000 people in the district without access to the internet. What's been harder about this experience of running for Congress than you expected? COVID definitely yeah. has been like the hardest thing. It's been hard. I, th- I think part of the hard thing is realizing how sometimes I get emotional feeling about, you know, wanting to, to not let people down. Um, people invest in you. Yeah. They invest in you financially. They invest in you your time. Um, and they work so hard to help you um, reach your goal. And I, I don't think I anticipated quite the weight of that in carrying that forward. And even with my daughters, it's sometimes where it's the heaviest. I have two daughters, they're eight and five. They know I'm running and they're like, oh, well, mommy's going to win. And, and, and so, you know, there's always this fear about how, how do you tell them? Like, I think I am, we are working this out. We definitely can win, but you know, dealing with with that kind of nagging negative thoughts that you try and put out of your head of the weight of, of everyone who is, who is counting on you to, to pull this thing off. Who has inspired you um, and helped you sort of move forward from those moments? Yeah. So what's been amazing to me, it's almost like the, the same people. The thing that's been most affirming in this journey has been the people that maybe I haven't talked to in 10 years or 15 years who are like, Adair, we know you, we know what you're about, and we're going to help you get this thing done. And it's just really, really affirming. And, you know, it's possible because we're making it possible. And it's possible because all of these people from across the district are putting in. We have volunteers at four times the normal rate for congressional campaign. And just seeing, like, everybody put in like that is... That's where I'm like, yeah, we're, we've got this. <laughs> we're going to do this. Um, and so it's been very affirming to see people from different parts of my life um, kind of all come together to, to, to help, help us get there. Uh, my eyes are tearing up a little bit about this there. What has been more joyful about this experience than you could have ever guessed? sharing it with my daughters, actually. So I expected them, and there has been some of this to be like, well, mommy's busy all the time. You know, I have an event, so there's another dinner. They have so enjoyed the campaign. And pre-COVID parades were their favorite thing in the world. Um, They got to hand out candy to other kids in parades. Oh my gosh. I know. Best Um, job. Pride parade at night where they got to wear rainbow dresses and stay up past bedtime with like light up jewelry. And it was the most fun ever. Um, So I expected it to be more like I was going to protect the girls from the campaign and like try and balance time. And it's been really a moment of joy to find them engaging with the campaign in a way they find fun. So that's been a really fun part of it that I didn't know we were going to have. What advice do you have for other people who might be considering running for office? Usually, especially women, I say you're qualified. Uh, women are much, are much more likely to question qualifications. Um, and I had that, you know, come up in a recent press interview. I was like, look at my resume. Like we're, you know, we are definitely we're qualified for this. Your um, resume is ridiculous. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And 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 unlikely, really. Yes. It's really impressive. It is. And and you know, the question was like, you basically you didn't run for like lower office first. It's like you're and when what he said to me was like, you're like someone from high school trying to go to the NFL. And it's like, no. Well, first of all, that <laughs> does happen anyway. Like that happens. So okay. <laughs> Um, but no, we're, we're, you know, so if you're thinking about running, like if you're questioning yourself, you're probably qualified. And I would say, talk to your family, talk to your partner. Like the campaign gets hard days. There's wonderful days. There's hard days. And having that support from an incredible candidate spouse, we hashtag candidate spouse all the time. Having that support from an incredible candidate spouse is so amazing. And part of why it has gone so smoothly for us is because we had lots of conversations before we did it. Um, so you need to have those conversations. What's this going to look like? We have shifting domestic roles. Um, I'm probably going to never do drop off and pick up again for like <laughs> a while. Um, and so having those conversations, so expectations are clear, I think are really important. Um, and then if you think you want to do it, just do it. Uh, I think sometimes we have trouble making the decision but what it came down to for me was if I didn't do this, I think I would always regret it um, and didn't want to have that. And so don't have that. If you're ready, like go for it. How can people support you right now? Um, there's so many ways and they can all be found on our website. So it's a dare, A-D-A-I-R, for congress.com. Of course, you can contribute there. One of the big things we need is to make sure we're getting our message to lots of voters, um, that um, people know who I am. And so that's done with TV and radio and mail. So please, if you're able... Um, donate what you can. There's also, you can volunteer and almost all of our volunteer opportunities are remote because of COVID. We have text banking, we have phone banking. You can write postcards um, to voters. Uh, so that's all on their website under the volunteer tab. You can pick whichever things you want to do. It's all there. Um, and share us on social media. So we have an intro video on social media that, um, trying to remember the last numbers, but for every like dozen people that see it, we have a new small dollar grassroots donor. So definitely share that. And, and we get a lot of affirming comments on that. That's great and keeps the team going. So those are some great ways to, to jump in and help. What gives you hope? I, um, you know, 2020, <laughs> hard year. <laughs> yeah. um, but what's been really giving me the most hope has been when I talk to some of our senior citizens who have lived for a good bit longer than I have, who remind me, you know, we went through the 60s. And it remind me when they got married, they couldn't get a credit card in their name without their husband. <laughs> and, and so it's a nice reminder to remember that even though things are bad, Martin Luther King was right. Like overall, the arch of history bends more toward justice. We just have to keep working and keep fighting. Um, and just remember, we have come from places and we will go places again. We have come from, from hard times. We will get through these hard times and move forward. And it's just, it's just helpful to remember that. And I've been thinking a lot about that with the passing of um, RBG and where the world was, you know, when she was born in 1933 and where we are now. Adara, this has been wonderful. Claire and I have both donated to your campaign. We feel very, very strongly about you as a candidate and about getting the word out about you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And this was just, I feel like I learned so much that I maybe should have already known, but you know, here we are. 
Thank you for having me. It's always fun to, especially my extrovert self, to get to talk to people. (laughs) That's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and much more on a thing or two HQ.com. 